0: Thank you very much for that kind introduction and for the invitation to come and speak to you all. It's my pleasure to be here at uh, the Oriental Institute, really the, the, the sort of founding center of Egyptology in the United States. So it's a great pleasure and privilege for me to talk to you about my research. So around uh, 1502 B.C., Tophimosa the first completed the conquest of Kush, incorporated Nubia into an extensive empire that would last through the end of the New Kingdom. And he ordered a number of commemorative inscriptions be placed at tombs, and you can see one of them up on the upper right-hand side here, and another one a little bit off in the distance, a little bit harder to see. Oh, I can get these uh, are right about here, um, sort of placing his name and the great pride he had in, in conquering Kush. Kind of rubbing Cush's nose in it, really. Um, or I, I almost like to think of it as you know sort of a dog marking his territory. Huh? <laughs> I mean, it's something at all, but I mean, it, it's it's about boundary marking, right? And so this means that Topla seems to have been an important symbolic boundary within the Egyptian Empire, even though the actual frontier was hundreds of miles upstream at the fifth cataract of the Nile, at a place called Kyrgyz, where of the third first left a boundary inscription uh, to be repeated by Tutmoses the third. And not to be outdone by Ramses II, who had to do, make everything great. Um, you know, we, we see this extensive Egyptian empire, but Tungo seems to be a, a place of particular interest and a particularly important symbolism. Um, now, just to give you but I'll do, I'll start by giving you a, a brief overview of the time periods involved. Uh, and then uh, and a little bit of the broader historical background, and then I'll move on to talk a little bit more specifically about this idea of entanglement and how it plays out at Tumbos. So, as I said, of the first conquered uh, the region in 1502 BC, he plastered all those inscriptions at Tumbos, including a very long, elaborate uh, historical inscription, uh, and then nothing much else seems to have happened until the reigns of uh, in and, and the III, around 1450 B.C., uh, when the, col- the colony was inserted at Tompos, and of course that's what I'll be talking about uh, throughout the, my uh, presentation today. Now, um, the New Kingdom lasted, the uh, King- Empire lasted from around that period, uh, right down to the end of the New Kingdom, uh, under the reign of Ramses XI, when he uh, uh, he invited the last viceroy of Cush, Panhesi, uh, to intervene in an uprising at Thebes. And Panhesi at that point thought, well, I could do this better than Ramses XI. So he decided to attempt to conquer Egypt, was beaten back by uh, a general named Heribor, who later became High Priest of Amun, uh, and retreated back into Nubia, uh, at which point the Egyptians tried to retake Nubia, but in fact were never successful. Uh, eventually, by somewhere around50 BC we see the emergence of a new polity uh, in Nubia. And this Egyptologists you know, have tended to frame this in terms of a total collapse and a reversion to quote unquote chieftains uh, in Nubia, broken up into a series of polities. But a number of lines of evidence, including the evidence from Tombos itself, suggests that in fact, there's considerable continuity between the old New kingdom colony and the emergence of a new Nubian polity. And one of those points of evidence is the inscription of Katamala from perhaps around 900 BC or slightly later than that, but clearly before the 25th dynasty, uh, that suggests the emergence of a new royalty uh, based in Nubia uh, and the emergence of a kind of successor state or the transition into uh, a new kingdom that eventually, of course, conquered Egypt, uh, starting with uh, Pianki, who was coronated in 747 BC and uh, suppressed a revolt and and defeated uh, the Libyan uh, dynasty who had threatened him in the Nile Delta, uh, eventually facing off against the Assyrian army in, in the Institute's Museum. You can see those wonderful Assyrian reliefs while he was fighting those guys. Uh, eventually he was defeated, but in fact Nubia continued on uh, for a long period of time after this, a uh, you know, kingdom that lasted really around a thousand years. Now, uh, Chombos is interesting because it covers this entire period through the 25th dynasty. So from the colony's founding in 1450 BC, we have strong evidence for continuity lasting all the way through the 25th dynasty. And this allows us to ask some interesting questions about uh, the nature of Egyptian colonialism and intercultural interaction, uh, the kind of cultural entanglements that ensued, and the impact of colonization on the rise of the Kushite state. And one of the most interesting ways I think to look look through look at this question, and a key to understanding this phenomenon, uh, lies in adopting a focus on an accumulation of individual choices. So, focus on how individuals uh, interacted, uh, adopted, or rejected, or were indifferent to, or uh, or you know. Uh, Otherwise adapted Egyptian practices, but also Nubian practices. So it's kind of a two-way interaction. You can see this in this scene of Nubian princes. So you can see some people in more Nubian dress, some people looking more Egyptian. But even in the folks who look more Egyptian, the sons of the princes right here, uh, you can see they're wearing kind of castles, uh, depending from their, you know, around their elbows. And this is not an Egyptian feature at all. So. We you can start looking at these kind of subtle differences, and we can detect this uh, archaeologically. So most of our work is, is concentrated on uh, the New Kingdom Necropolis, so you can see here a whole bunch of tombs uh, starting around 1450 BC, but again lasting through about 650 BC through at least the end of the 25th dynasty, a number of monumental pyramid tombs like the tomb of Siamum that I'll talk a little bit more about uh, in just a minute. Uh, but before i get on to talking about our results from the cemetery uh, in this latest phase of excavation from 2015 to 2017 we started looking for the ancient settlement that went with the cemetery through so this big cemetery and one would expect to find uh, what egyptologists have called a temple town so uh, a big fortified settlement as you would expect in, in a colony uh, with some kind of temple in it uh, but so far it had evaded us Um, And so the question was where to look for it. Well, there was, uh, so there you see the the great inscription to Moses II, uh, the village of Tombos down towards the middle on the right-hand side. And there was a fortress at a place called the Baki Island, uh, but it clearly was Christian in date. And in any case, it faces the wrong direction. So if the Egyptians are going to be worried about anything, a place to place, a fortification, they're going to be worried about people coming up from the south. Uh, some of those kermans who maybe weren't so happy about the fact that the Egyptians conquered them. Uh, so this made, that made no sense. And the, a series of inscriptions by uh, a group of viceroys uh, placed at Tombos, again reinforcing the idea that the third cataract was a kind of symbolic boundary, all pointed towards the area right around the modern village of Tombos. Uh, and in fact, this was also close to the cemetery, and as we started walking, even just like literally in the house that we were staying in, we would walk around and we'd look at the ground, as archaeologists do, <laughs> and we tend to stare at the ground a lot, and we kept seeing all this pottery, and there was clearly New Kingdom pottery, so there had to be something there, and we started off with a couple of test excavations, didn't find much, found some pottery, uh, but then we started uh, excavating on a large scale underneath the modern town, and I have to uh, give a, a real shout-out to the people of Tumbos who put up with our digging holes in their streets and everything. <laughs> a little grumpy at times, understandably, but for the most part, very cooperative and, and very, uh, uh, you know, very very happy to have us uh, poking around in, in their village, which was really nice of them. And I have to give another shout-out to Mohammed uh, Farouk Abdul Rahman Ali, who was a graduate student at UCSB, uh, obviously Native Sudanese. Uh, and is now Dr. Muhammad, uh, which is uh, a, a, a great great source of pride for me. Uh, but he's an amazing guy, really cool guy, and he, he made all the negotiations with the local people, including in this excavation area, actually uh, convincing someone uh, to let us dismantle their house, <laughs> which was just at foundations at that point, so it wasn't tearing down his whole house. But he started building a house, and then all the walls were up about this way. And uh, you know, with compensation, naturally, uh, we tore down his his, his uh, preliminary house and dug a big hole under it. And this was very key to uh, to understanding what was going on underneath the, the village. Uh, but just to backtrack a little bit, we started in 2013 again uh, with Mohammed Farouk uh, playing a key role, uh, and Bruce Williams as well, who's uh, sitting right here. who's uh, uh, made a huge contribution to Nubian archaeology, and it's come out with me. Every year we worked at Tombos. Uh, and uh, we, did, we excavated in the area around our house. Actually, our house is, oops, is uh, right there. So that's our dig house. And so we decided, oh, we saw all this pottery around, so we tried a few test units. And uh, in the one sort of right next to the road, next to a canal, we actually found the remains of a building, which was very exciting, uh, and with lots of pottery and other artifacts along with it. So we thought, aha, here we have the town. So we started excavating all around the town, and we found a whole lot of nothing, uh, until we got up to the northern part where you see the uh, the image up there, where we found a strange underground structure. (coughs) So um, a large, you can see here, it's about uh, 15 meters long by three meters wide, at least as we had it exposed there. Uh, And it was a, a trench that had been dug about two meters deep, lined with mud brick, plastered with a plaster floor with a little bit of settlement debris, some pottery, a little bit of animal bone, a few other assorted objects that suggested a domestic kind of occupation of some sort, but not a lot, mostly filled in with sand, a little flaps, and so on. Uh, and, it, and this was a real question, What is this underground thing? I mean, I couldn't find any good parallels for it elsewhere. Maybe an underground storeroom? I mean, you know, it's hot in Sudan, so it makes sense to have some place underground where you might store things. So then the next field season we, we decided to trace it out, and it kept going, like the Energizer Bunny, it kept, you know, just went along, and, uh, and we found a corner. And then we thought, aha, okay, this is some kind of enclosure. Um, and the pottery suggested a date right around this time frame that we know this, the, the uh, site was established, uh, probably starting to infill with trash about the reign of uh, Amenhotep III. You see distinctive vessels like this one. Uh, This kind of carinated or angled bowls, you can see some examples in here of decoration, some of them that one sherd with the dots and lines might be a little bit earlier in the sequence, Um, some of them a little bit later, but bracketing about that time range between the founding of the colony around the reign of Topaz III uh, to the reign of, around the reign of Amenhotep III, let's say not later than about 1300 BC. Uh, and at that point, uh, the town wasn't abandoned because so you found later pottery there, and the cemetery continues right through. Uh, but apparently the fortifications were abandoned. And um, as one archaeologist had said, because of uh, an idea called the schlepp factor, so basically, you don't want to schlep your trash any farther than you have to. Um, you have this big trench that that's empty, and okay, trash goes in there. You know you don't want to drag it across you into a dump someplace. So you use the most expedient place, and you fill it full of trash. And trust me, we found thousands of potsherds. It became a kind of a logistical nightmare to deal with them all, but we found some nice ones like this. The site has also produced some other diagnostic pottery from this time frame. The cemetery was very active during this period, including, and these are from the cemetery, not the settlement, but examples of blue painted ware, which is a very distinctive kind of pottery, and I'm happy to say archaeologists love this kind of thing, um, this is the farthest south that painted ever, painted, blue painted where has ever been found. Um, somebody may find it you know, somewhere south later on, that's fine. Uh, but for now I've got bragging rights. Um, but this, is, this shows that, that this site was actually capped into kind of the larger political network. Because this is very closely associated with the palace industry and elite distribution. So clearly the people with Tumbos were important. They were uh, very much part of the larger political economy of trade, Exchange and of the empire, so this was an important place, as suggested already by the boundary inscriptions. We also found a lot of domestic pottery of various kinds. Most interestingly, from the point of view of entanglement, Nubian pottery. So here you see here handmade pottery, matted press. This one has uh, applied clay to the bottom of it, which is typical of cook pots in this period of time to uh, help uh, avoid thermal shock, so it absorbs some of the heat. Uh, that was coming in so the pot wouldn't crack. And you can see this one very sooty here, clearly used for uh, making pots. This one quite sooty as well. Um, and here's an Egyptian-style cooking pot. And the interesting thing about this is that um, most of the cooking pottery seems to be Nubian. Uh, and it wasn't because they didn't have Egyptian cook pots. As you can see, that pot uh, on the upper left-hand side, in fact, it's quite sooty and it's a typical shape for an ancient Egyptian cook pot. So it suggests that there is some kind of uh, impact on Egyptian cuisine and cooking. And this could very well come through uh, the intermarriage of women into the colony. This is a very common trend that we see in ancient colonial situations and more modern ones as well. Uh, Gil Stein, based here at the Oriental Institute, has talked a little bit about this in his work. Uh, But also in the most more recent history of colonialism, uh, we see over and over again that uh, when colonies are inserted they tend to be... Uh, a bit man-heavy and, and people want to establish relationships. It also allows people to establish ties with the local community and create a kind of more informal back channel for resolving any disputes that might occur. So it makes a lot of sense that if you're talking to your father-in-law, as opposed to you know, the leader of the, the, the guy over in, in the next town or village, um, you, you know, it's, it's a much more smooth way of dealing with, with channels and so on. So again, showing, showing the, uh, the the kind of international ties that uh, the site had, we've also found Mycenaean pottery. And again, I can say that this is the farthest south that Mycenaean pottery has ever been found. Uh, which is really quite amazing when you think about it. It's like a thousand miles up the Nile uh, from Mycenae. And we're getting these these typically smaller vessels, flasks like this one. That one, there's not a scale, but in reality, the pot is about this big. Uh, and so it would have been used to hold something like perfumes or... Some kind of flavored oils, perhaps, uh, some kind of valuable commodity. And we're, we are finding sherds of it in the settlement. So, in addition to being in the cemetery as a kind of prestige good associated with the burial, we're also getting it in terms of daily use within the cemetery itself. Um, now, we do have evidence from the pottery in the cemetery. A lot of this, this one would date to about 1300 BC. Um, but we do have pottery that's later, including this this uh, duck sensor from the cemetery and then assured of the, just the duck part, the duck's head part, uh, from the settlement, and this has to be the cutest pot I've ever found, I just uh, But it was used for burning incense, uh, and the duck itself was found at the entrance under, underground at the bottom of a shaft next to the entrance to a burial chamber, and I love this kind of thing because I can imagine you know, the deceased uh, relatives going through the, you know, the ceremony of of, of placing the dead underground and burning incense, uh, the, the, you know, the scent of the gods uh, uh, coming along. So really cool, yeah. The lights. Can you turn down the lights? Sure. Off? There we go. Much better. Okay. Thank you. So there you go. So you can see, see, see our, our ducky uh, uh, little sensor right there. It, it's so cute, I have to say. Anyway. Um, so this would date to the Ramesside period, so somewhere around 1290 to uh, 1,000 BC, um, and maybe even into the, the, what Egyptologists call the Third Intermediate Period, so the, the period after the end of the New Kingdom, but more likely in the, uh, towards the end of the New Kingdom at some point. And then here on the, right, on the left-hand side, a couple of red polished vessels. Uh, on the top, part of a sharply carinated bowl, so again with the sharp angles, and then a, a kind of kettle-necked jar that should be somewhere in the, uh, the Ramesside period. And then on the right-hand side, that white piece, uh, is very diagnostic for the third intermediate period. So, and we have other, other sherds that would indicate uh, this long history of settlement at the site. We just haven't really found any any major deposits like we have for the New Kingdom. But that may just be the fact that the, this fortification was abandoned in the New Kingdom and then filled in with, with debris and trash and eventually sand and so on. Uh, and that's why we have the large deposits and that the we just haven't found the area where they were throwing their trash away in the third intermediate period. I can only hope to find lots of good third intermediate period trash. Uh, but this also included a lot of normal domestic things, a spindle whirl fragment in the upper left, uh, and rather en- enigmatic little ground sherd disk that, uh, for lack of a better, better explanation, could be a gaming piece, which actually is pretty plausible. That's kind of an archaeological cop-out, though. It's either a ritual object or a gaming piece, you know. Um, but it would make sense as a gaming piece. Um, and then groundstone for, you know, processing grain and so on. Uh, also, you know, different kinds of lithic material for cutting metal, uh, alabaster fragments of vessels and things like this. All the detritus of, of life during this period of time. And one of my favorite things, uh, these little, they look like clay beads, but in fact they're net weights. And for therefore exactly this kind of net that the, the guy... Uh, on the lower left at Tombos is, uh, is fishing with. And in fact, he's uh, one of the guys who's worked for us and supplies us with fish while we're digging there, which is very tasty. Uh, but it's a kind of net where you throw it in and it spreads out wide. It sinks down to the bottom. And then when you pull it up, it kind of goes like this and traps the fish inside. Um, a very distinctive kind of, of, of fishing and very cool to see it documented uh, through these kinds of objects, which are really common at these archaeological sites. So we kept following this ditch out, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And so in the end, it was 215 meters uh, east-west going to the edge of the Nile, where clearly it had eroded, so it's 215 meters plus. And then we got to 230 meters north-south, and as one does in an archaeological dig, ran out of time. Um, yeah, you know, You're just like pulling your hair out, and you're going, oh, just a little bit more. Uh, but you know, at some point, you, you've got to shut it down, and, and so we decided that was it. Uh, so now we have a major thing to follow up on. Now, in the northern part of that, uh, the the area is totally destroyed. The town is totally destroyed, ancient town, by the modern village. But underneath this palm grove, there's a real possibility that we may, in fact, have the remains of the ancient settlement, which would be very exciting. Uh, but at this point, we just have a an, little bit of an idea about what was going on in the settlement, and a little bit of an idea of the sort of cultural entanglements that might have existed, particularly a kind of gendered perspective on that through the, uh, the influence of Nubian women, perhaps on the colonial cuisine, uh, but we hope to be able to explore that further in future excavation seasons. Uh, now we did find evidence of the collapse of an inner wall in one area, and perhaps a gateway in the upper left there, and that would lead if you, if you took a path from right from this area here where there appeared to be a gateway, basically a point where the the trench was filled in with hard-packed mud uh, and lined with stone, uh, which would make a lot of sense. Uh, and if you go up this way, you find that giant stela of Tomoza III and the inscriptions of several of the viceroys. Uh, so again, a very important symbolic point uh, that's kind of aligned already to the northern exit out of the city, So very, uh, or the colony, very interesting idea. And then some other areas of reuse and infill, including one area that had a whole bunch of bread molds in it for baking kind of bread sticky things that were prized in, uh, in offerings that may hint at the presence of a temple nearby because if we have a fortification we ought to have a temple somewhere. So again that's something we'll be looking at. Now this this trench, uh, kind of a dry moat fortification, has a parallel at the site of Sesebe, uh, but it's only about 80 meters to a side. And in fact if we compare Tombos uh, to other sites we find that Tombos is very, very large indeed. So it outstrips most of the other New Kingdom colonies, both back in the, going back to the Middle Kingdom fortresses in Lower Nubia, but also the New Kingdom establishments like Tsai Island, um, You know, almost double the size of Tsai Island, probably by the end when we you know, are able to map the fullest extent, about twice as much. Several times the contemporary enclosure at Sesabi, uh but... Later on, there was a, a mud brick structure built. And the dates track almost exactly with the construction of the, this moat at Sesebe and the increased investment in fortifications at Tsai and a real stronger investment in settler colonialism. So actually people coming, Egyptians coming and settling in these sites. And we do actually have evidence from the cemetery, uh, from work led by uh, my Colleague Michelle Bouzon from Purdue University, who directs the biological, bioarchaeological component of it, uh, using strontium isotope analysis, we can tell that uh, um, initially, something like forty percent of the earliest burials are uh, individuals who probably came from Egypt. Interestingly, both men and women, uh, and then you know, immigration from Egypt continues throughout uh, the New Kingdom down to the Ramesside period, and then cuts off abruptly. Uh, with the third intermediate period, which makes a lot of sense from the historical reconstruction. But it's interesting that we see this flow of of colonists coming in uh, throughout this period. But also clearly intermarrying with local people because the population itself looks to be of a kind of mixed biological ancestry. And I can go into that in more detail if you're interested, but I'd like to move on to other things. One last point to make about the settlement is that uh, it matches up to a place mentioned by the viceroy Mary Moza uh, in an inscription at another site uh, at a place called Semna, but who left an a, in a that you can see here, a very nice one, at Tombos. Uh, but he talks about raising troops fr- between Baki, which we know is the fortress of Kuban in lower Nubia, and a place called Taroy, which has to be Tumbos. Uh, so there are no other likely sites. It's about the right distance, about 590 kilometers uh, that's mentioned in the text. And it makes a lot of sense with this idea of a symbolic boundary at the third cataract. Uh, so we can see a kind of uh, distinction between a zone of uh, of uh, incorporation into an empire with, settler, with colonies established and settler colonialism uh, and then a zone where there was a more Uh, Indirect or hands-off policy of uh, a kind of uh, Indirect looking at uh, leaving a certain degree of autonomy uh, to the local princes uh, And a less cultural impact so we have heavy cultural impact in the north from Egypt with these cultural entanglements and then a little bit more diversity in the south and local control and Tombos that makes Tombos a kind of important boundary a location uh, between the two cultures and perhaps uh, helping to negotiate the sort of cultural differences between them. Now initially, the cemetery at Tombos looks very Egyptian with monumental tombs uh, like the tomb of Siamun, who we know held the title of scribe reckoner of the gold of Kush. And this may hint at why Tombos is such a large enclosure. Uh, The scribe reckoners of, of gold had a lot to do with the assembly of tribute, or tribute is really not a particularly accurate term, uh, in ancient Egypt, it's, it was called uh, Inu, and this was something like a ceremonial gift to the king. Uh, there were certain expectations about how much you should be giving to the king, uh, and in exchange, of course, the king, the king gave you the breath of life. Um, a pretty good deal for the king, I would say, but, you know, <laughs> just saying. Um, but, you know, it's about a, establishing a, a relation of pat, relationship of patronage. The king would protect you in exchange for these kind of personal gifts. But in reality, it was a source of income for the state, and in particular the palace. Um, and so, very important. So Siamon's tomb is the largest one. It also was tricked out. So this had funerary cones, which are normally a Theban thing. There's over 400 tombs in Thebes that were decorated with cones. There are something on the order of a dozen outside of Thebes that were decorated with cones. There's only one other site that has cones in Nubia. The one tomb at a place called Aniba, which was the colonial capital in lower Nubia. Uh, and Tombos, we have now at least two tombs with uh, friezes of cones, perhaps three. Um, so really interesting, again, very close connection with Thebes, the sort of main southern center of Egypt, the uh, home of the cult of Amun-Re, uh, and, you know, an important political uh, establishment, and where the, you know, the main point of control for the Nubian colony in throughout most of Egyptian history. Now, these tombs were elaborately decorated, and we were very lucky. This doesn't look very exciting, I know, but for me it was exceptionally exciting because these tombs are made out of mud brick, and so decoration almost never survives, and we were lucky enough to find a brick that was reused in a later tomb, (laughs) excuse me, that still had traces of a a scene scene on it, a priest carrying something. You can see the shaved heads, and you have to trust me a little bit, but if you look at the the arc of the back of the head, in front there in particular and you look at the eyebrow And if you look closely you can see a lips and it's it's really good stuff I mean this isn't like some provincial artist who's just you know sort of hacking it out it's this is somebody who really knows what they're doing and so this suggests that (laughs) there was a whole community of artisans who were supplying the needs of these elite colonists the bureaucrats who were running the colony Some of these bureaucrats may, in fact, have been originally Nubian in ancestry, but they had, in effect, assimilated to Egyptian cultural norms. But some of them, and I suggest Siemen probably is one of them, may have been colonists, in his case, probably coming from Thebes. They were also buried in Egyptian-style coffins. This one was a bit weird, though, because there were three people in this coffin, uh, two women and one guy, and I'll leave your imaginations to figure out what the relationship might have been, um, but, um, and, yeah, it could have been his sister and his mother, or could have been something else. I don't know. I always say that when we got down to the guy, uh, my, the bioarchaeologist I work with said, ooh, he's a hunk. So, anyway. Um, <laughs> you can actually tell that because, you, you know, the, the bones get bigger as you pump up and you get muscular. So, you can tell if the dude's ripped, and dude was ripped. So, that's all I'm saying. You know, I, again, I'm not saying, you know, it could be, a, you know, just female relatives of some kind. doesn't have to be anything else. But... Yeah, I don't know. Um, But I was very excited about this coffin. As you can see, it's been badly eaten by termites, which is a real problem at Tombos. We rarely get very well-preserved wood. But this one, at least the decoration was preserved. I don't know how well you can see it. It's a little dark, but there's a little figure of one of the four sons of Horus who protected the innards of the person, and there's an inscription on there. And as Egyptologists will do, I got very excited and started reading it off in ancient Egyptian. Nimachikher Duamutef, blessed before Duamutef, one of the four sons of Horus. Fortunately, Michelle, though, rushed up to me and said, Stuart, no, stop, because you know what happens when you start reading inscriptions in front of, you know, <laughs> mommies get up and the, you know, the dead walk again and they start chasing your team. and, Trust me, it's a bummer. You don't want to go there. So, so thankfully she saved us from disaster. And, and you'd think I would know, having, as, uh, you, know, as you mentioned, it's consulted on the mummy movies. You know, you'd think i know better than to do that, but no, you know, it, just, it just shows you that, that conceit in those films. Absolutely true. People say, don't read from the book, and well, I'm going to read from the book. You know, I'm not going to listen to that. Now, normally, coffins, look, and the, the shared coffin thing may be an aspect of the fact that the, of relatives of one kind or another, whatever their exact relationship was, sharing in the magical spells that appear on the coffin. And one of the things about coffins is you can look on them as a kind of, resurrection machine, in a way. Um, you know, it helps the deceased, uh, you know, successfully become rejuvenated in the afterlife and become an immortal god, a ba, you know, immortal Ba uh, that exists on forever and continues to protect the deceased after death. And so this may be relatives trying to get in on that. Uh, the top area was also a little disturbed and the coffin lid was a little ajar. So it maybe suggests that a little bit of the underworld of ancient tombos of people... Uh, robbing tombs but trying to cover it up. So they, like, rifled the top body and then just, you know, sort of put the lid back over it. But it was just a little off so you could see that someone had been messing around with it. Now we were very lucky this past field season in 2017 to find pieces of wood coffins, which was super exciting for me because we never find pieces of wood like this. I don't know why the termites decided not to eat these. This is a really very fine quality. There were fragments of two coffins that, of course, tomb robbers had completely torn apart. Don't ask me why, because tomb robbers are not nice people, I guess. Um, and it, it includes these beautifully carved scenes, uh, and we have now a hemneter priest, which is a fairly high-level uh, priestly title, and, and his wife, Becky. Uh, so a guy named Haidt Horm, and his wife, Becky. I love that name. Um, and the, but the inscriptions are also kind of weird. I haven't had a time, time to really parse this out, uh, but they're un- somewhat unusual for a coffin. They're conventional in some ways, but the layout is weird. And one of the, one of the coffins at least mentions both him and his wife. And there were clearly two coffins, one for him, one for his wife. So um, it's, it's very curious. But it may also suggest, again, a kind of local coffin industry, by someone who was really skilled, because the hieroglyphs are very well carved, the inscriptions are very legible, except the layout being slightly weird and the renderings of the different deities are very nicely done. It's really a very high-quality coffin with ebony inlaid eyes. You can see one of them there. Uh, so something very fine is going on with this coffin, but it does seem to be kind of a local thing. Uh, so we, we're also getting an aspect of a kind of local reinterpretation, maybe, of some Egyptian ideas and rituals. And this tomb was also equipped with funerary cones, mentioning a hymnnetra priest, but in the way of cones, really hard to read. Uh, so, this says Hemnatcher, and of course, where the name is, it's hard to read. Uh, so, it could be Horebhayt, could be some other Hemnatcher, I don't know. Uh, and then some mention of Amun, maybe a reference to the temple, um, but then a Mnute, I don't know. Anyway, it's a very odd inscription. But very exciting to find another tomb with its own set of funerary cones. Again, a very theming connection. And then we also have evidence, remarkably, of the co- a copy of the Book of the Dead although rather freakishly preserved. So this is actually a fragment of somebody's skull. Uh, and um, I'll give you an enhanced version of it. You can see hieroglyphs. And, but you can also see they're running at sort of cross purposes. So either they were really freaky in decorating skulls with, with spells, hieroglyphic spells. But I think what's happened is uh, a copy of the Book of the Dead or a similar papyrus, I haven't actually confirmed that it's a Book of the Dead, but it would make sense, uh, got, kind of got crumpled up, stuck up against the skull, and through some strange taphonomic process, the ink transferred to the skull, uh, maybe as part of decay or something like that, and then the papyrus decayed completely, and we ended up with the skull fragment. But we found several fragments of skull like this. But exciting, because it shows that they had funerary papyri, which is something that is hard to find in Nubia because of the poor preservation of organic materials generally. They also had heart scarabs. This one I love with the little human-headed scarab. It's a rare variant. Um, Normally it's just a scarab, but... Uh, a number of these have been found in Egypt and Nubia, uh, dedicated to a woman, uh, mistress of the house, or a lady, lady named uh, Weret. Uh, and then uh, this beautiful Ushabti, not a whole lot of Ushabtis from Tumbos, but uh, this one quite nice, but kind of curious. The Ushabti itself is beautifully carved. You can see the sensitive treatment of the face, inlaid eyes, and so on. But if you look at the inscription, it's actually quite crude. Uh, so it's like they bought an Ushabti blank, maybe imported from Egypt or from some workshop. And then, you know, like Uncle Jehudi was the one who who did the inscription and just went, oh, yeah, I know how to do this, and went, shh, shh, shh you know. And, and so it's, it's literate, So although it's, it's a bit hieratic-y, so I haven't really come up with a satisfactory tran- translation. But it's laid out like a, a coffin would be, which is a legitimate variant of how ushabtis are. Normally they have the spell that, in case the gods should call upon you to do any work like this, from the tomb of Sinedgem, uh, you the Ushabti will jump up and say, here I am, here I am, and run around and do the work for you. Um, I was def- if I was an ancient Egyptian, I'd definitely want one of these. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> we also found uh, canopic jars, uh, this one to a lector priest, so again hinting at perhaps the presence of a temple at Tombos, uh, with still the sad, sad remnants of the person's internal organs in them. Um, so, they, uh, indicating the full on mummification treatment. Even though we think of evisceration as a standard part of Egyptian mummification, in fact, it's rather unusual. It's really restricted to the upper echelons of Egyptian society. And other objects, bits of cosmetic vessels, lots of jewelry and so on, especially as we go down uh, the social ladder. And then here's another tomb. We actually found several now ceramic coffins. um, Maybe a solution to termites, maybe a cheaper version of wood. Uh, but uh, very interesting. Again, certainly a local industry because you don't want to transport these over very long distances because they're big, clunky, and rather fragile. And then the lowest, sort of most simple kind of burial on the upper left, an individual who was wrapped up in a reed bundle. And this is something that at new excavations at the city of Amarna, they found a lot of burials like this. And this is apparently how poorer people were buried in Egypt. If you couldn't afford a coffin, you at least got wrapped up in a reed mat. And then here, a nice scarab from Queen Hatshepsut, our earliest royal name. So again, reinforcing that idea of Temposa III. Actually, let me go back and point out one thing. And in... Oops. There we go. And in the middle of the shaft, one burial here that's flexed in Nubian style. Uh, And this is another interesting pattern that we've, uh, we've seen. Here's another tomb with a flex burial in it. Dating from around the reign of Tutmosis III, based on the pottery, or perhaps slightly afterwards, um, and uh, and in another tomb, uh, this in, the, in this case probably dating from around the reign of Amenhotep III, uh, a woman buried in flexed position. This is kind of in the fetal position, uh, so very much in a Nubian style. All women so far. We found about ten burials of women in this flexed position at Tombos. Now that's a minority. But nevertheless, it would have made an important statement about identity. Uh, and you've got to be in, kind of impressed by this. These Nubian women who had entered into society insisting on being buried this way. And, of course, their families ultimately were the ones who decided to do it. But during a funeral, it would have been very obvious compared to an Egyptian funeral with a mummified a burial in a coffin and so on. We have uh, a woman probably carried on out on a bed to the necropolis, uh, wrapped in some kind of shroud, perhaps. Uh, but a very different set of ritual practices that would have really highlighted her Nubian identity. And there have been a number of other burials found. Here's an example from Soleb. Uh, and then, but my favorite one is this one, which, yeah, you know, it's kind of a relaxed burial, shall we say. Uh, but in fact, she was originally like this. And what's happened is someone has pushed her arm up while the body was still fresh, because once a body starts to desiccate and dry out, it gets brittle but this was, the body was still flexible. So it was sometimes after uh, rigamortis had, had released, uh, but before the body had had a chance to desiccate, because everything's articulated. And what they were doing was they were going after a necklace around her neck, uh, and probably a piece of valuable jewelry, very likely gold. And the reason I know she had a necklace is that these amulets were behind her neck. Um, so, so here she's buried very, very deliberately in a Nubian style, very much contrasting with the other burials in the tomb. Uh, there was that one other Nubian burial of a woman from about the same time period, and then, uh, but otherwise all the other burials in this tomb were Egyptian in style, and yet she still had these, these amulets of Bess around her neck. And Bess, I mean, what's not to like about Bess? He's a little ugly, but that's a good thing. He's ugly cute, you know? And he scares away evil demons and snakes and other things uh, that come in the night to get you. Uh, So a very protective god, a household god, particularly connected with women. And the little best, the dancing best with the tambourine, was actually so beloved by this woman that in spite of the fact that the head broke, it was actually strung through the arms. So the head breaking off broke off in antiquity and was lost at some point. But she loved this amulet so much that she kept it on the string. Uh, So I love these moments where you get a real sort of window on someone's life. So we also have found Nubian pottery. Now... Again, according to conventional ideas about uh, Egyptianization of Nubia, uh, Nubian ceramics, Nubian cultural practices should have ended by this period of time. And yet we see a persistence of these traditions muted, admittedly, uh, but still continuing on right through the New Kingdom. And you see a nice cook pot on the left-hand side. The cook pot was found in the courtyard of Seaman's tomb. So again, reflecting these kinds of entanglements. Yeah, maybe siemen 's tomb is very Egyptian and even Theban in orientation. But the rituals, you know, when they were doing the ritual meal, probably funerary feasts or preparing food for an offering, uh, commemoration, uh, they were doing it in a Nubian cooking pot and perhaps with Nubian-style cooking. And then this nice cup that was actually found associated with a couple of other burials of uh, Nubian women in flex position again. Now, one of the uh, further entanglements increased during the Ramesside period at Tombos. And so here you see the core part of the original cemetery, right next to it, starting around 1200, or maybe even a little bit earlier than that, uh, a, se- a, se- a separate cemetery with tumuli. So tumuli are just a kind of round mound, in our case made out of uh, the local granite, uh, granite stones, uh, in a kind of ad hoc manner. Uh, in these tumuli, we've done a series of radiocarbon dates, and the ones with stars are from the cemetery, but you can see we have a nice continuous sequence uh, from the New Kingdom, the Ramesside period, so from 1200-1300 B.C., running all the way through uh, the Third Intermediate Period, all the way down to uh, the 25th Dynasty. There's a little gap in the radiocarbon dates uh, between the very end of the Third Intermediate Period and the beginning of the 25th Dynasty, right around uh, 800 B.C., but in fact we have pots like this one that should indicate solidly 25th Dynasty burials still occurring within the cemetery. So what we have are kind of a multi-vocality or multicultural contacts where some people are signaling a more Egyptian association with more Egyptian past and identity with these uh, continuing construction of pyramid tombs and other mud brick tomb structures, the reuse of older tombs, uh, and at the same time you have people being buried under Nubian-style funerary monuments, uh, signaling very much their Nubian identity. When you start looking at the burials themselves, we see that they're heavily entangled. And so in the case of the tumuli, uh, we have a, a shaft leading down to a side chamber. In this case, we've opened out the shaft a little bit, but you can imagine uh, the, um, for safety reasons, but the, the shaft would have been right about in through here, leading down to uh, a side chamber. That's a very Egyptian form of substructure. It's oriented uh, roughly east-west uh, with the body... Head to, the we- head to the west, facing east towards the rising sun, very much in line with Egyptian theology. And yet you have those trenches, which were for bed legs uh, to sit down in. And we have actually remnants of beds, again, eaten by termites, but a rather nicely preserved one up on the upper left. And that actually dates to the New Kingdom. So a uh, radiocarbon date, 1216 to 1048 BC from the Ramesside period, along with this black top, rather unusual blacktop pot, again, indicating a continuity of Nubian cultural Uh, traditions. But at the same time, we have all these amulets uh, of Egyptian style. Uh, The smaller ones up above are from uh, the perhaps late New Kingdom into the early Third Intermediate Period. Uh, The larger ones, those two lovely ones of Isis, and there's a little one of the dwarf god Patekos that I'll close up in just one second. Uh, And this very unusual scarab. It's rather large for scarabs. It's about this big. Scarabs are normally like this with a very unusual scene on it of offering bearers, one carrying uh, a pot and one carrying something else, maybe a pot, maybe a bag, uh, with little lotuses on either side. And this is something that has no parallel in Egypt that I've been able to find. It seems sort of in an Egyptian tradition, but I think what it is, is Nubians kind of riffing off of ancient Egyptian iconography. So yeah, it's a scarab, but it's different, it's bigger than a normal scarab should be. It's got, yeah, offering bearers, that's the sort of scene that you expect from Egypt, but not on a scarab. Uh, So they're starting to be adaptive. They're starting to be selective. They're picking things, and they're generating new Egyptian-themed objects, uh, but with their own uh, particular ideas in mind. And, And this is very much part of that notion of entanglement. So we see not just simply the imitation of Egyptian things, although in some cases, like the burials I showed you earlier, again, some of those people probably were originally of Nubian ancestry, but eventually assimilated into Egyptian norms. But increasingly what we see are these kind of entangled representations and new things. This Patekos, uh, really quite remarkable. I mean, this is something you might expect to find in a royal tomb. It's really a a beautiful example of the uh, artisan of faience's work. And in a way, it fits into the normal Patekos figures, but it's also a little unusual. It has these sort of magical figures on the base of it, uh, the figure of the goddess on the back, very popular in Nubia regardless. So the Nubians were also selective about the deities they chose to worship. They were big on Isis, a strong queenly figure, and we know that Egypt, uh, Nubian queens were in fact uh, much much more prominent in, than Egyptian queens were. Um, gods like Bess, the little dwarf god, perhaps through the intervention of women, like the woman buried at Tombos, who just decided, this is a cool god, and yeah, I want to worship him, because he's going to protect me when I'm sleeping and protect me in childbirth and everything else. And that eventually entered into... Uh, the Nubian lexicon, as well as the Egyptian ones. And whatever the case, there was certainly a preference for potatoes. Perhaps this is even a local product, again, kind of adapting a little bit from Egyptian ideas. Another example of this is in one tomb that was reused. So this tomb was originally built in the New Kingdom, and this is where that little ducky uh, incense burner came from, right down at the bottom of the shaft in front of the entrance to the main chamber of the tomb. But about halfway down the shaft, we found it, the extraordinary burial of a horse. Um, which for me was very cool, because I actually have a horse and I ride. Um, so finding a horse it was totally unexpected and really, really cool. It even still had fur on the, its hindquarters, so I can tell you that uh, the horse was chestnut with white socks. Um, and, uh, and when we, wrote, we recently had an article published about this, and it got a lot of traction in the news, I was pleased to see that not only did it make it to the archaeological blogs and things, but also the horsey ones, so that was, that was just a lot of fun. But it, it's a practice that we see at El Kuru, the cemetery of the 25th dynasty kings, where they buried whole chariot teams, and it's a practice we see at a number of different places in Nubia. <clears throat> this one is particularly interesting because of the date, so just after the end of the New Kingdom. So it shows that they're not, you know, they're also kind of developing new uh, and powerful symbols, in this case, the horse, which actually uh, our horse specialist said was harnessed to something, almost certainly a chariot. Uh, was used, was a formidable military machine on the one hand, representing the power and might of Nubian civilization and the individual who owned the horse and perhaps was a charioteer. Uh, it also rep- you know, symbolically was very important to the Nubian kings. In fact, when Pianchi uh, finally uh, defeated uh, his enemies and recaptured a city that had rebelled against him, he seemed to have been more offended at the fact that they had mistreated his horses than at the fact that they rebelled. So he like he goes into the stables and he, like, totally chews them out for, like, "Well, look at my horse, what are you doing? Um, so the Nubians were very much into horses, and this, this kind of gives you a, a little bit of a preview on a more private level. It even had a little scarab associated with it, and at Kuru, they had these more elaborate uh, designs. It also had some iron tack, which is really interesting, because this is very early for iron in North Africa. But in line with uh, what new excavations at Merowe. Previously, it was thought that the iron industry didn't start there until about 500 B.C., but now it's known that it stretches back at least to the 25th Dynasty by, so let's say, 750 B.C., and in fact, I think the latest evidence is pushing it back even into the time period that, that we're at. So I'd like to talk about one other tomb that, that, uh, where we've gotten some of our most remarkable um, finds and it illustrates this process of entanglement. Uh, and you see here a pyramid tomb built in the 25th Dynasty, um, and right next to it, the one I'm going to talk about, is um, this little tomb here. You can just barely see it. It's a little, would have been a little domed chamber chamber tomb, a little vaulting over it uh, to someone, not the most important person in the cemetery. That would have been the guy buried in here. And we did excavate this tomb and we found uh, an interesting sort of random, or seemingly random orientation of burials. So they, they seem to have broken out of that east-west orientation and were kind of, Moving people around as they liked, although there was some tube robbery, so uh, it could be that disturbance, but I suspect, in fact, uh, that it does represent a little bit of entanglement or at least an adjustment of Nubian norms. But there was at least one heart scarab, uh, this one, which could date from the New Kingdom, since this area was used during the New Kingdom, but the style of it looks almost identical to the royal heart scarabs from the 25th dynasty. So this reflects the fact that Tombos in spite of the end of the New Kingdom, was still an important critical center with a real, you know, really wealthy elite in uh, this part of Nubia, uh, even after the colony ended. And that means that, you know, the, cl- the impact of Egyptian colonialism was a lasting one. It didn't just end with the end of the New Kingdom, but continued on afterwards through the, these processes of entanglement. So we anyway, back to our, our tomb here. So you can see there it is. The vaulting had apparently collapsed when tomb robbers broke into it and rather rudely broke the mummy in half. I think going after, again, probably gold jewelry around the neck. And then at that point, I think what happened was the, they had undermined the vaulting and it fell in. They got in their gold jewelry and they just went, meh, and left. Uh, and, you know, I love lazy tomb robbers. Uh, they're really awesome because they take the stuff that would be a real pain to deal with gold. Trust me, I do not want to find gold because everybody gets excited over gold. Too excited. So then they start going in and they start digging holes in your side and the the government gets involved and they like weigh in and everything. It's it's a mess. So I'm just as happy that the tomb robbers get the gold and then I get the rest of the stuff. And this was just full of things. And it reflects this kind of entanglement. So superficially the tomb looks very Egyptian, kind of mud brick structure, underground structure. And here you see the burial. And you have to trust me because all the woods decayed. But it was heavily wrapped and I could tell separate the wrappings from the wood. We actually found some scraps of linen as well. Uh, And so a, a heavily wrapped mummy within a a mummiform coffin, but on a bed. So the bed burial is a very strong Nubian tradition, so we already have this kind of entangled set of burials. And you can see from this nice uh, scarab of a a griffin trampling an Asiatic, I like to think of him as an Assyrian, but whatever, Um, with the name of Shabako, one of the key Nubian kings. So this dates the tomb to about 700 BC, and consistent with the radiocarbon date. Also black-topped pottery, again continuing on. This one's really interesting, though, because it was thrown on a wheel So as I mentioned, Nubian pottery is handmade, and these handmade traditions continued into this period, Uh, but in this case, this is kind of a hybrid. So you have an Egyptian technology, a new shape, this kind of drop vase, uh, but an old decorative uh, motif, very reminiscent of the great Kerma civilization from the Bronze Age. So they're looking back and pulling in decorative motifs, but adapting it to the latest technology. Very cool. And uh, amulets around his neck, a bunch of Egyptian ones, as one might expect. But uh, this group of, actually these weren't around his neck, I correct myself, Uh, they were in a little pile next to him. They could have come from the body, uh, but sometimes maybe a little basket or something that had since decayed, full of jewelry. Uh, And then uh, a set of beads, the the ones below are kind of dark, but they're made out of hematite. Uh, And then the ones above are made out of quartz, a very important symbolic material for Nubians. And the juxtaposition of black and white is kind of color choice, that we also see in the Great Cemetery at Kerma on tombs with white and black stone. So it seems to be a, you know, have a very Nubian sensibility. Uh, Two, we have the dwarf god Patekos, again, very popular in Nubia. Amun-Re, a goose, a reference to Amun again. The Nubians were also into frogs, uh, the god slash uh, goddess Hecat. Uh, Eye of Horus, always popular. And my, but my favorite amulet is a little kitty amulet. Uh, that was also found there that has a little nephr sign underneath it, so beautiful cat. I'm a cat person too, so yeah, I like that a lot. A really remarkable scarab, uh, but so uh, also reflecting his connection to the sort of wider world, so in a way he's signaling his Nubian identity through the bed burial, but then his Egyptian connections through uh, the mummified burial, uh, but then this cosmopolitan thing uh, with the... um, with this object. So this is unique. I don't know of anyone like it, if any of you out there has seen anything like it, but it's a copper scarab. Um, it's, I don't have a scale on it, but it's about this big, uh, so it's about, about three inches uh, long, so a bit large. Uh, it has a cryptographic, a variant on a cryptographic inscription that means something like, "Amun loves the one who loves him. and You can't just read that, you have to use cryptography, but it works pretty well. Uh, but it, the normal inscription is much shorter, and so this is a very sophisticated little work of art as well as a religious item. Uh, so something interesting is going on with this guy. He also had the latest iron weaponry. This is very early, again, for iron in Nubia. Uh, but then right next to it, a stack of arrows tipped with microliths. So you have the latest technology on the one hand and a technology in Nubia, particularly with these multiple microlith uh, arrow, composite arrowheads, that goes back to the Neolithic period. So again, he's, he's signaling Cosmopolitan, latest technology, but tradition as well. So it's a complex, multifaceted kind of guy, and it's it's great when you can kind of get a handle on that. You have know, copper alloy bulls, and it's a little hard to see, but with the white outlining there, there are a series of bulls running around them. These could even be Phoenician imports, uh, and but certainly in the international style of the time, and in, in fact, in the tomb of one of Piankies. Uh, Wives, this faience bowl from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, uh, has exactly the same motif of the bowls. This is surely a local product, Um, so they may be imitating these items in the international style. But by far and away the most extraordinary thing that I I found is this uh, wooden box. And, you know, people always ask you, what's the coolest thing you've ever found as an archaeologist? And before we found this, I had to say, well, you know, this or that. I mean, the the woman with the scarabs and with the best ambulance is pretty cool and some other stuff. Uh, But this thing is really remarkable. So you have to look at it carefully, but this is an open work design of papyrus columns. I think you can see open, closed bud, open, closed bud, open, closed bud, with empty space in between where there's dirt. And then in the middle of it, there's a cow. I'll help you out here licking a calf. Um, and then in front of the cow licking a calf is a stork, uh, probably a reference to the Bennu bird. So this is all about creation, fertility. The cow is a reference to the goddess Hathor. Uh, the stork is quite unique and very interesting. And again, it seems to be riffing off of Egyptian themes, but combining them in new ways. But the cow and the calf actually is this motif. So this is from the... Assyrian capital at Nimrud, but it's exactly the same thing that we find on this amazing decorated wooden box. And I think that you may even have a few examples of fragments from these in the Oriental Institute collection uh, from excavations in Iraq from the Assyrians. Uh, So this is very much part of the international style. Again, this guy is plugged in in terms of, of the whole, you know, kind of, he's very hip. I mean, he's up with the latest stuff. Uh, but he also is that like I'm a dude too, man. You know, I'm, you know, I'm I'm one of you guys as well. So inside, we're getting hints that you can see a couple little vessels peeking out. Another unique motif of papyrus, clumps of papyrus, and a person carrying water on a yoke with a maybe a calf in front of them. Could be a goat, I don't know, or a sheep rather. Uh, but this scene too with uh, an image of the sun god as creator, as Nefertum, an infant uh, king uh, emerging from a lotus blossom, and then with a cow on the left-hand side and a calf on the right-hand side. And each one of these individual things is very consistent with sort of Egyptian notions, but I've never seen anything combined like this. And I really wonder, the ivory knob that's above there, I mean, it is just a knob, but it looks an awful lot like a sun disk. And Egyptians love that kind of visual punning. And I wonder if you don't have the sun disk up there with the sun god emerging from the lotus blossom. Could be my imagination, but it's a very cool little scene. And again, it seems to be, you know, not just imitating Egyptian ideas, but actually moving forward and developing their own theology around uh, these kind of Egyptian myths. But inside the box was what we found that was incredibly interesting as well. So three faience vessels, and uh, a couple of sets of iron tweezers and other cosmetic implements Uh, but you can see here very unusual here's uh, the two sets of tweezers one big and one small Um, so i mean dude wanted to look good when he stepped out that's all i'm saying Um, you know like he was plucking stuff and and you know making sure and then these these little vessels which are all fairly small i mean they're all about this big um, would have been for holding perfumes and oils and that kind of thing so it was all perfumed and oiled up and all of that, he was, he was yeah he was looking good. Um, and then this, this vessel here I've never seen anything like it. It has no parallel that I know of, and if anybody recognizes it, let me know. But this seems to be, also have a very nubian sensibility, so it's, it's a kind of bead-net pattern and, and, uh, as if suspended and hung, and that's a very nubian kind of thing. But this is really the most extraordinary one. Um, a little vessel with, with little statuettes of the god Bess. Uh, reflecting the Nubian obsession with Bess. They were really into Bess. Uh, but again, no parallel. The little frog lid is absolutely the cutest thing I've ever found. I mean, it's this cute little frog. It's like a centimeter big, but it's got little eyes on the web feet and a little crinkly skin. It's very cute. Um, and you can see the colors are just vibrant. And this is without any special cleaning. This is just like normally cleaning them. Uh, the, apparently, the conditions inside the box were great for preservation. But the little frog lid actually has a parallel on Sardinia of all places. Um, so again, this guy has tapped into this larger um, a kind of elite style of the international style of the period. Um, maybe even some of the stuff is being generated in Nubia and being exported out. I don't know. Of course, the frog leg could have come from outside, uh, but these two faience vessels have no good parallels uh, within Egypt, so no reason to think they might not have been made in Nubia. Nubia had had, had a... Uh, thriving faience industry going all the way back before the Egyptian conquest and the Kerma culture. So it's quite possible that they were producing some of these items on their own. So I'll just uh, conclude very brief, very quickly with the, this idea of entanglement and, and how it produced uh, the foundation for this Nubian dynasty. So we see, again, not just the imitation, uh, but the adaptation and the selective adaptation of Egyptian ideas and deities. So the god Bess, I've already talked about him a bit, uh, he is monumentalized. He is pulled into the state pantheon in a way that you don't see in Egypt until much later, and that, in fact, may have been the result of Nubian influence flowing into Egypt uh, during or after the Kushite period of the Kushite dynasty. So Bes becomes a, a central god, very important deity, these monumental things. If you're going on that Nubia trip, this will be a treat. This is a very cool uh, temple, the, the Temple to Mut at Jebel Barkal, uh, but with these very unique uh, Bes-engaged columns. Uh, another feature that we see uh, where influence is flowing not from Egypt to Nubia, but the other way around, is in the Ram imagery uh, connected with the god Amun. Uh, and there's a very plausible case to make uh, that, in fact, that imagery appears during the New Kingdom as, uh, a, as a means of integrating the two cults, uh, Nubian and Egyptian. And, in fact, this is kind of an interesting thing. So um, on one level with the god Bess at some point, foreign gods become uh, so familiar that, in fact, they no longer are foreign. So by the time that Bess statue was made, uh, Bess may not have been seen as an Egyptian deity, but, in fact, was a Nubian god. Uh, And in a similar way, we see the, the joining of Amun and some local deity, maybe one with a very similar name. Later on, Amun in Nubia is called Amani, and you kind of wonder if there wasn't a god with a similar name and similar kind of creator connotations. But uh, by fusing the two, then the, Nubia, the Egyptians almost uh, sealed the fate of uh, their kingdom in the Third Intermediate Period by providing that connection where the Kushite kings could come into Nubia, uh, excuse, excuse me, could come from Nubia into Egypt claiming to be the legitimate uh, uh, successors of Egyptian pharaohs against the Libyan dynasts who had, had become decadent and had brought foreign influence into Egypt. Um, <laughs> And by, you know, by this time, Amun was a Nubian god. And Amun as a ram was, uh, you know, a Nubian as well as Egyptian. And so they could claim, no, we are the true ones who are favored by Amun, uh, not these Libyans in the north. And so it's, it, it's very interesting how you go from this process of colonization and domination uh, to, in fact, Nubians reversing uh, the story and coming to dominate Egypt through a very clever use of ideology Uh, and other techniques, but coming from, flowing from the colonial encounter, but uh, how Egyptian culture was transformed in Nubian society. So I'll end with that. Thank you very much. Here's uh, some acknowledgments, and especially Michelle Buzon uh, and the National Corporation for Antiquities and Museums.